Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Uh, and wanted to wait until more of you were here online so we can announce that Christmas Eve. Uh, we are, this is going to be a tough Christmas Eve, as all of you know. A lot of us have not seen each other from Horizon Church in months, haven't talked to each other, haven't been able to connect. And this year, what we're hoping to do on Christmas Eve is give you an opportunity to see each other and connect. Starting at 545, we will be outside on Christmas Eve. And we're going to be participating with apparently a movement that is happening really worldwide among people who are followers of Jesus Christ. At about 545, we're going to start lighting luminaries on our property outside at 6 o'clock, really all around the world at 6 o'clock in various time zones. I understand that there are going to be believers who are walking outside of their homes and their churches and ringing bells for two minutes. And we'll be doing that with people all around the world at 6 o'clock. And we'll follow that up with a brief carol sing outside as well. Uh, and then our service, we will be here uh, on 7 o'clock at Christmas Eve for a service. But we do know that most of you are going to be home on Christmas Eve. So we are planning a service in which we will be at home together. And a lot of you who are going to be at home are going to be participating in this service in one way or another. If you cannot be here or are not comfortable being here, even for the outside part of our service, we would love to have you participate at home. And you can pick up a pack starting today. Uh, They're going to be ready starting today. You can uh, pick up a pack. It will have luminaries inside. It will have uh, bells inside. And it will have handheld candles. So you'll be able to participate in the entire Christmas Eve at home. You can pick them up. If you are not able to get here, we have people who have volunteered to deliver packs during this week, but you have to let us know that you'd like to participate at home. Let us know, and we'll be sure that you get a pack um, so that you can participate at home, and hope that you will be here, at least at home, participating uh, on Christmas Eve. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll move on. God, thanks for the fact that you are present in our lives regardless of the circumstances. You're not required to uh, wear a mask. You you are not required to uh, stay in a particular place, but you manage to be wherever we are, and we're grateful. God, this has been a tough year, and we are so anxious for it to be over. We've been waiting for it to end. And in some ways, God, I think that we believe the, the end is, is coming and we look forward to it. In the meantime, God, we have a lot of difficulty yet to get through. And God, I know that for some of us, this has just been this long, long process of waiting. God, I want to pray that you'd help us to learn how to wait well, whether we're waiting now for this to end or whether, God, we're waiting for other circumstances in our lives. Waiting is so much of what we do in life. 
And I think, God, that you have lessons for us about how to wait well. I pray, God, this morning one more time that you'd be uh, communicating with us through your word and through what we talk about. God, I do want to pray because of this burden that all of us who teach have. I pray, God, for faithfulness to you and to your word and to truth. God, if in any way I say what might be wrong or inaccurate or more from my own ideas than from you, God, please, through your spirit, would you protect all of us from being influenced incorrectly? God, I'm also grateful how you take truth, how you've done it in my own life, in the lives of people that I know and love, and you take truth and you shape us. I pray, God, that you'll be doing that this morning too. Thank you, God, for your word and for truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if, if, you're, if your neighborhood is at all like mine, uh, you may have noticed that in the last couple of months, you have a lot of new neighbors. Um, anybody notice a lot of homes for sale in your neighborhood? Um, um, it's, it's a very odd thing if you follow real estate at all. The real estate world, like everything else, back in the early months of 2020 when COVID got started, it looked like the real estate market was going to be on life support. Uh, people couldn't visit homes, people couldn't get into homes to look at them, and it looked as if the real estate market was going to be uh, dead like so much else. And instead, what we've discovered, if you talk to a realtor, at least, at least the market for homes, the real estate market has been on fire in a lot of areas, including this area. Now, I know that there's not just one reason for this, that there are all kinds of contributing factors for why it's done so well, but there is one reason for why the real estate market has done so well, and it's actually a very sad reason, uh, and it's, it's the word acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. And my guess is that most of you here or watching online, you probably don't even know what that word means, but you'll find out. In the last couple months, there have been some very smart people who write for magazines and journals and blogs and news outlets like uh, Wired, the Brookings Institute, the New Yorker, Joe Rogan, and they have been writing about this word, acedia. And some of them are actually using the word, or not all, but they've been describing acedia. And they have been pointing out that since our national and since our worldwide lockdowns got started, some very, very sad things have been happening. And they tend to all point out the same three sad things. Number one, people who suddenly were spending a lot more times in their homes realized that they did not like where they lived. They didn't like their homes. They didn't like their yards. They didn't like their neighborhoods. And in part, it's this discovery that people didn't like where they lived that is responsible for this monstrous reshuffling of real estate that's going on. The second thing that people discovered, sadly, when they were forced to be at home with each other is people discovered they didn't like each other. 
and divorces have gone up significantly. The third discovery people didn't like having to be home with themselves is that people discovered they didn't like their own lives. Now, tracking things like despair and suicide can be a very tricky thing to do. But the national EMS system, which tracks national data for first responders, they report that since early 2020, calls for mental health and behavioral crises have gone up in our country by 10,000 per week. And what they call deaths of despair have spiked significantly in 2020. This is the kind of waiting that we've been doing in our country that is deadly. It's deadly. Advent is an annual season of waiting, waiting for Christmas, and we've been talking about waiting. And I want to talk today about a deadly kind of waiting. I don't want to think that we can oversimplify a very complex problem, but this kind of waiting is, in part, what people are calling acedia. Now, acedia is an old, old Latin word. And because it's a Latin word, it is not going to be found in our Bibles, but I guarantee you that the subject is there in our Bibles. Acedia is one of those Latin words where you put an A in front of a good word, and by putting an A in front of it, you actually reverse its meaning, like the word theist, which means someone who believes there's a God. Put an A in front of it, and it's someone who does not. Now, acedia actually comes, it's a word that comes from, believe it or not, although it's a Latin word, it actually comes from an even older Greek word. The Greek word is kados. And that word means to have an interest in things, to care about things, to be concerned about things. Put an A in front of it, and that word now means you're no longer interested you don't care anymore. It's hard to be concerned. Now, for those of you who are curious, you might go home and you might actually Google this word, and if you look it up online, you'll find out that often in our English language, we will say that a synonym for acedia is the word apathy or laziness or to be unconcerned. And it certainly includes those ideas, but it is just so much more than that. Interestingly, if you look it up, trivia-wise, you'll discover that acedia was a word that almost died out from the English language. The 1933 Oxford English Dictionary declared the word acedia obsolete, and they said it'll disappear from our dictionaries. Then World War II happened. 
And then in the 20th century, there were massive genocides in multiple countries around the world. Armenia, the Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Rwanda, Uganda. And suddenly the subject of Acedia came roaring back. Even Ian Fleming put the word Acedia in the mouth of James Bond in several of his novels. And today you will find that thinkers are writing more about Acedia and how it's happening right now around our world. They've been writing more about it than they have in 500 years. Now, the last group of people that wrote about Acedia were monks. They wrote about it from a particularly religious perspective. And they wrote about it because of three things that were going on in their lives as a monk. One, monks lived lives where their contact with other people was limited. We call it social distancing. Two, monks lived lives where their movements were restricted. They were often confined to a certain space. We call it being locked down. Thirdly, monks lived lives where they worked in the same space where they lived. We call it working from home. And as a result, these monks started writing about how they suffered from they said, a kind of general, undefined, undirected anxiety. Anxious all the time. They didn't know why. They said, I can't sleep at night. I can't stay awake in the afternoon. They could barely force themselves to pray. And they said, you know, I really don't care if I do or do not. Sometimes they didn't have the choices. And they said things like, I just don't care anymore. You decide. I don't care. They couldn't concentrate. And they were given to simply staring out their windows endlessly. Had they had screens, they would have been staring at them endlessly. They felt sad. They had little energy. They didn't like where they lived. They didn't like their lives. They pursued, they said, insignificant distractions. They found it very hard to care about what they knew logically was the most important thing in their lives. And they called this whole package acedia. And it's back. Now, to our benefit, these monks also knew that there were some very, very wise ancient men who wrote about acedia a lot in the Bible. For example, in the book of Proverbs, Acedia is a major subject. We miss it because very often in the Proverbs, in English, the subject of Acedia is translated as laziness or sloth 
but it is so much more than laziness or sloth. And fortunately, the same people who wrote about Acedia in Proverbs also wrote about its antidote. So I'm going to read you one place in the book of Proverbs where a very wise man wrote about the antidote to Acedia. It's in Proverbs chapter 27. Andy, are my glasses sitting there? Can you throw, throw them up here? Sure. Thanks. Proverbs chapter 27. I'm going to start reading at verse 23. You've got your own Bible, follow along, follow along at home, maybe if you're looking at your phone or whatever. And then um, you may just want to keep it open so you can see for yourselves what we're reading when we talk about it. Proverbs chapter 27, starting at verse 23. Know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds, for riches don't last forever. And the crown might not be passed to the next generation. But after the hay is harvested and the new crop appears and the mountain grasses are gathered in, your sheep will provide wool for clothing and your goats will provide the price of a field and you will have enough goat's milk for yourself. Now that's an appealing thought, isn't it? You'll have enough goat's milk for yourself and your family and your servant girls. Now here's the deal. Um, I think before we actually talk about this, I should probably make a very quick comment so that we're all on the same page. In cultures that are older than our particular culture, whether it's older by 200 years or 2,000, using a farming image to describe life was extraordinarily common. And if you think about it, it's a great image because a farmer who does farming knows that you have to take care of things in order to grow something. And often that growing is a process. And so farming images got used all the time to talk about life because it fits, because our lives are very much the same. You got to take care of things in order to grow. So how many of Jesus' parables about life were about farming? A certain farmer went out to sow his seeds. Some of it fell on the path, some fell on rocky ground, some in the weeds, and some in good soil. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a certain man went out to plant a vineyard and he put a wall around it, and on and on and on. Now, obviously, Jesus is not intending to give lessons about seeds, tiny ones, or vineyards. He's talking about life. So long, long, long ago, when a certain wise man said, know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds, he isn't necessarily talking just to shepherds. He's talking to all of us, and he's talking about life and all of the things that make up your life. Know the state of your life and put your heart into caring for it. Why? Well, the next sentences tell us 
Because without care, all of it will be lost. That's the theme of the next two sentences when he says wealth doesn't last forever and there is no guarantee that the crown is going to stay in your family. So here's what this means. Everything worthwhile in your life requires effort. Everything worthwhile in your life requires work. You and I in this life will never arrive at a place where work is no longer necessary. We've been in our house, the only house we've ever owned on Muhlenberg Street, three blocks away since the summer of 1998. Of all the neighbors that we had when we moved in in 1998, we only have one set of neighbors that's still the same. That set of neighbors have been great neighbors. They're wonderful people. Now, even the day we moved in, in June of 98, they were an older couple then. Very old, we thought. Late 60s. They had retired just before we moved in. And they were living the ideal retirement life. They golfed a couple times a week. A car would pull up. They'd walk out the front door with their golf bags over the shoulder. They'd throw them in the trunk and off they went. They had a garden out back and they grew monstrous jalapeno peppers. He would tell me often, I eat one jalapeno pepper a day. And sometimes, because I grow hot peppers, we would trade hot peppers over the fence. He heated at least part of his home with a coal stove. So he had a coal bin out back. And during the winter, I would sometimes hear that pleasant sound of him shoveling coal into a metal coal bucket that he'd carry inside. He took meticulous care of his yard, weed-whacked with precision. They hung Christmas lights on several trees outside and over their door and around the edge of their roof. In the very early days of us living there, they put a brick patio out back and they put a permanent roof over it. And at least weekly, there were family picnics on the weekend, often on their patio. It was a long time ago. 1998. And over the years, age started catching up with them. The golfing slowed. No longer did they carry the golf bags on their pack, but whoever showed up in the car would go into the house, get the golf bag for them, put it in the trunk, and then it stopped completely. The Christmas lights got fewer, and there are none now. Heating with the coal stove became too much effort. And now the coal bin out back is a wood bin that is falling apart. The last two or three years, I noticed the garden didn't get planted at all. And it became a patch of tall weeds. Sometimes I would still give him hot peppers over the fence and he would take them with shaking hands. There are no picnics out back anymore. No Christmas lights. 
the grass has overgrown the once sharp edges. All that we have is fleeting. And without care, it is lost. Everything worthwhile requires effort. You and I will never arrive at a place in life where work isn't necessary. This is the danger of acedia. It's the danger of the life so many people are right now living, waiting and dying inside. So how do we resist? What's the antidote for acedia? Well, there's two bits of advice that come from this very old book of wisdom. It starts out with this piece of advice. Know the state of your flocks. It's his way of saying, you have to know what is important in your life. You have to know what's important in your life. Now, this sounds so extraordinarily simple to us that most of us will ignore this piece of wisdom. But I guarantee you, there are a few things in your life that will impact you more than making a deliberate decision about what is important. Let me show you what I mean. How many of you have ever listened to that little safety speech that you get on your plane just before it takes off? There's a line at the end of that speech. It gets said every time Every single time when they are describing the process of exiting the plane, the last line always is, and leave your luggage behind. Very, very few people sitting in a plane agree with this last line. I know people disagree because I do. They say it, and I think, yeah, 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 well, I'll grab mine quickly. In September, just a few years ago, 2015, a British Airways jet taking off in Las Vegas had a catastrophic engine failure, started on fire on the runway, This is a sight nobody wants to see. And yet what observers saw happening on this plane was even more astonishing. Quite a few passengers actually stopped evacuating. They turned around, went back in, and grabbed their baggage. Slowing down the process of evacuating immensely. Now, fortunately, nobody died, but 14 people were injured, one or two of them seriously. The Federal Aviation Administration, in talking about this, said, look, we require that planes be evacuated in 90 seconds. Now, that sounds quick, but it's doable, and it would save lives. 
it would keep people from being injured. But what happens is that usually about half the people decide, I'm going to get my luggage. And 90 seconds turns into seven minutes. Imagine, you're stuck in a plane filling with smoke for seven minutes. One pilot of a major airline, after a small fire that he had had on board, shook his head and he said this, people love their carry-ons more than they love life itself. Now you shake your heads and I know why. Do you know why this is? Why we love our carry-ons so much? There's an interesting psychological process that's going on. If you were at home thinking logically, if you took your carry-on and you dumped out the contents on the living room floor, you would look at it and you would agree, there is nothing here that is worth my life. If there was a disaster in your home and you were told you had to grab just a few items, none of those items that are in your carry-on would make the cut. But here's what happens to you, and it happens to all of us. When you were packing for this trip, you had to decide, what is important for this trip? What do I need to take with me? What matters for me now? And those items suddenly became very important for you. You decided they were important. They mattered. In your mind, they became important. They were made to be important. And so people habitually risk their lives for what they thought was important. A book, a pair of reading glasses, an iPad, some snacks, a couple pair of underwear, a pair of jeans, a couple button-down shirts, a toothbrush, and deodorant. I ain't staying on a burning airplane for that. But people do. So there's good news there's bad news here. The bad news is we're not very good at deciding what's important. The good news is we get to decide. We get to decide. And Jesus says, I'll help you with that. Think about the times when Jesus talked about making this kind of a decision. What's important? A time when he was sitting on a hillside talking to his disciples and he said, look, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Another time, same group of people, 
Same. There's far more to your life than the food you put into your stomach. More to your outer appearance than clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless to the care of God. Or another time, Jesus, same group of people, same subject. Has anyone by fussing in front of a mirror ever gotten taller by as much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you think it makes that much difference? You see how Jesus is helping us to sort through what matters? I want to tell you about an interesting practice that I've been doing for a short period of time now. This practice constantly, constantly makes me ask what is important. I have a little rule I've adopted in my house for my life, just for me. If I buy something new, I have to get rid of something else. It's painful at times. It's hard. But I can't tell you how freeing this is. How it liberates me from thinking that this particular thing is important. I have a stash of Cabela's cards. I know pretty much what I want to get. But I know that if I get it, I have a decision looming, right? So I'm not yet sure where Donna's going to be living. <laughs> no. Uh, truly. Someday, soon, some of our new neighbors, who are all young, someday they will look at our house. And they'll say, do you remember when we moved here? Remember they used to put up Christmas lights? Remember how they filled the house, the yard with flowers? Remember how they grew raspberries and blueberries? Remember how they used to hand out hot peppers to the neighbors? If we don't do any of that anymore, I hope they still see us shuffling down the sidewalk holding hands. And I hope they will say, well, at least they still have each other. The bad news is we're not good at deciding what's important. The good news is we do get to decide. Decide what is important. And the second lesson is act on it. This wise writer of this proverb wrote this. Put your heart into caring. There's the word. The word that's important to us the word that leads to acedia when we stop caring. Put your heart 
into caring for your herds. The disease of acedia is a disease in which you stop caring. You don't have the energy to care anymore. It takes too much effort. Now here's the thing, it's absolutely true. You as a human being, you cannot make yourself care. We can't make ourselves care. But there is something you can do. This wise man went on to say, look, after the hay is harvested and the new crop appears and the mountain grasses are gathered in, your sheep will provide for you. You will have enough. So I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence here, but who harvested the hay? The farmer did. Who gathered the mountain grasses? The farmer did. And when he did, there was a reward. Now, if this is about the care of your life, the care of your soul, who is responsible to act? I am. You are. Now, I told you that the book of Proverbs is a wonderful book because from beginning to end, it's full of wisdom about countering acedia. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Now, I hope you remember, we're not talking about farming. We're talking about our lives. It's a very, very painful reminder that when it comes to our lives, we often chase fantasies. Let me tell you about two fantasies we chase all the time. One, I'll do it tomorrow. Or I'll do it after the holidays or I'll start January 1st. Somebody once told me that a little bit of wisdom, they said, whenever you are doing that to yourselves, whenever you are trying to put something off, instead of using a date, like I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it January 1st, substitute the word never and see how comfortable you are. I'll start writing a book Never. I'll start paying attention to my health. Never. I'll start working on prayer. Never. I'll start inviting people to a Bible study. Never. I'll talk to my wife about what's bugging me. Never. I'll work on getting a better job. Never. And then he said, when you say that, what does that do to your soul? It troubles me. Because these are things I said were important. But just by saying it, it makes me ask, was I chasing a fantasy? 
or did I mean it? It causes me to ask a very troubling question, but an important one. And it makes me get honest with myself right quick. So what can I do right now? What can I do this moment that will put me on a path that I want to be on? Can I text a friend even before I leave this building or even before you get up from your chair? Can I text a friend? Can I text a spouse and say, look, we need to talk. Don't let me forget it. I need help working on prayer. If it's important, you can do something about it before this day ends. Or keep chasing fantasies. The second fantasy we chase is this one. It's someone else's fault. I'm connected to a lot of pastors, of course. And over the course of my lifetime in meeting with pastors, I have used this fantasy, I've chased this fantasy many, many times. Well, his church just has a better location than mine. She has better volunteers than I do. By what miracle did he get all of those stellar leaders? Well, if I could hire half a dozen staff members, I'd be doing services like that too. I wish I had his voice. If I had a Scottish accent, everybody would listen to me too. Yada, 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 yada. When I listen to people tell me what's wrong with their lives, their business, their marriages, I've discovered that this fantasy is epidemic. It's true. Other people are tough to work with. It's true you're not married to the perfect spouse. It's true neither is your spouse. <laughs> it's a hard world. It's just a hard world. But those who work their land, their land, the land for which they are responsible, will have abundant food or keep chasing fantasies. Now, here's the good news in all of this. Jesus says, how about if I help? Your life is his project, even more than it is your project. And one time Jesus spoke to people who are very much like us, people who are weary, weary of waiting, Waiting and waiting and waiting for a Messiah that some people were saying, he's never coming. Acedia was getting the best of them, too.
And so he gave this invitation. Come to me. Come to me. All of you who are weary, who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. I know that many of you, particularly those of you who are watching online, are too young to really remember a man named Billy Graham. And so many of you have no idea how influential he was and how he shaped our world. Billy Graham actually just died two years ago in 2018, just a few months shy of 100 years old. Near the end of his life, he wrote a book called Nearing Home. And he wrote it, he said, because, quote, as a believer in Jesus, people were always telling me about how to die well. People taught me how to die. No one ever taught me how to grow old. No one ever taught him about waiting. So he was talking with his wife one day, Ruth, driving in a car, talking about the need for this book. How do we wait? How do we age? Ruth actually said she agreed with him. They'd never thought about it very much, but she agreed. They happened at that moment to be driving through a construction zone, and they were sitting waiting patiently. When they left the construction zone, as they left, Ruth saw a sign, and the sign said, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. And she said, that's it. All life long, we are building a life with Jesus. Someday we'll be done. That's what I want on my tombstone. And so it was done. While we live, we are building a life. Someday we'll be done. Thank you, God, for your patience. Let's pray. God, we have a lot to learn about how to wait and how to wait well. Our whole world is suffering right now because we have not learned how to wait. We don't like our homes. We don't like our lives. We don't like the people we're living with. We don't like our jobs. We don't like our, our neighborhoods. What we've discovered, God, is... that we've been too busy to learn how to wait and wait well. God, I pray, I pray that you'd help us to take responsibility for our lives 
to recognize that there is nothing worthwhile that isn't going to require effort. But more than anything else, God, I thank you that Jesus will help. Thank you, God, that he came, that he's here among us, and that Jesus will help. I pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website of horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.